0: the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, January 8th, 2010. I'm Elena Ranki. It's a new year, which means new resolutions and potentially new relationships. Yeah, I'm talking about your love life. This past Tuesday, we kicked off our 2010 Science in the City Girls' Night Out series with someone who knows a lot about romantic sparks and what causes them. Helen Fisher is a biological anthropologist who studies what happens in our brain when we fall in love. Or lust. You might have seen her on the Today Show or TED.com. Or, most recently, you might have filled out her survey on the online dating site Chemistry.com. She's the chief scientific advisor for the site because Fisher believes there's a true science to finding our perfect match. This week, Helen Fisher talks about anthropology, online dating, and monogamy, among many other things. Oh, and if you missed her lecture, check back on our website for a link to the video of the event next week. It's produced by 13WNET.
1: I'm Dr. Helen Fisher. I'm a biological anthropologist from Rutgers University. I've written... Five books on sex and love and romance and attachment and marriage and adultery and divorce and gender differences in the brain and uh, most recently about personality, temperament and why you are chemically drawn to some people rather than another.
0: If anyone can be called a love doctor, it's Helen Fisher. She's been studying what happens to us when we fall in love for more than 30 years. When it comes to love, though, says Fisher... It was her very early interest in anthropology that set her on the course for her current research.
1: I think the most important thing in my childhood was that I was an identical twin. When anybody sees twins, they constantly ask you, do you like the same food? Do you get the same cavity in your teeth? Do you have the same friends? Do you have ESP? Do you know what the other person is thinking? And so long before I knew that there was a nature-nurture controversy, an issue on, you know, how much of your behavior was biological and how much of it uh, was cultural, I was very busy measuring my own, the amount of my own biology in my behavior.
0: What happens to us when we fall in love is a little bit the same as two twins growing up. There's a certain amount of personality and behavior that's dictated by their genes, but then their environment plays a factor in how they turn out as well. Fisher says that we may be biologically drawn to certain characteristics in other people because of certain chemicals in our brain.
1: I think we've evolved four very broad personality styles associated with the brain chemicals, dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and the last being estrogen and oxytocin. And if you are a person who's very high estrogen, male or female, and you are verbally skilled, have people's skills, compassionate, nurturing, empathetic, good intuition, emotionally expressive, you tend to be drawn to people who are very different from you. People who are direct, decisive, tough-minded, emotionally contained, very ambitious. So you may chemically be that nurturing, empathetic type who's going to go for a lot of different kinds of men who have that sort of tough-mindedness.
0: So opposites, chemically speaking, attract, says Fisher. So do men and women tend to be opposites in general? For instance, are men typically higher in testosterone and dopamine, while women are higher in estrogen and serotonin? It's not that simple, says Fisher. Here she's referencing a study that she did using data collected from chemistry.com.
1: Just as many women fell into that high dopamine, what I call the explorer category, as men. So women are just as daring, just as generous, just as curious, just as creative – The differences lie in the categories of the the high testosterone scale and the high estrogen scale. There are many more men in my high testosterone scale. There are many more women in my high estrogen scale, Mm -hmm. although there were some men in my high high estrogen scale, and there were some uh, men who um, have very high estrogen. For example, a lot of football players have very high estrogen, as well as testosterone, which means the testosterone is giving them the aggressiveness and the muscle mass and the focus on the game. But, you know, if you got them at home, you might find that they're also very nurturing with their wife. Uh, who knows? But um, anyway, there's nice data that uh, that you can be high on both estrogen and, and testosterone, low on both, or high on one and mm-hmm. high on the other. But more women in my sample of 40,000 were high on the estrogen scale, and more men were high on the testosterone scale. Now, my fourth category uh, the serotonin scale, once again, there's no difference between men and women. I mean, just as many women as men are traditional, conventional, cautious but not fearful, uh, thorough, um, uh, managerial, uh, interested in network and family and connections, religious. You know, sure, there are real gender differences in some way, and there's some real similarities in others.
0: Despite all these similarities, though, it seems like a lot of us have trouble finding Ms. or Mr. right, because we all know it's not as easy as just matching up brain chemicals.
1: Well, I think as you grow up, you develop what I call a love map, which is an unconscious list of what you're looking for in a partner. Most of us don't know what's in that love map. So when you walk into that bar or restaurant or go on the internet and see various people, uh, some will just, you know, fit within that concept of your ideal and others won't.
0: I'm sure we're all familiar with our own love maps. And I'm sure a lot of us feel that our maps are upside down or written in another language. You know, not exactly leading anywhere. And while in the past, wallowing around in loneliness might have been a symptom of this singleness... These days, that seems to have taken a backseat to proactive searching for the right partner. Yeah, I'm talking about online dating. Fisher's recently teamed up with Chemistry.com as their chief scientific advisor. I asked her how it all got started.
1: I had finished my book, Why We Love, and uh, I'd worked for years on that book. It's all, that, that book's all about my brain scanning of people who are madly in love. And, you know, there's very few times in my life when I really have nothing to do with that I'm really between projects. But when you finish a major book that's taken you years, you sort of have a few months where you're just sort of in, I don't know, just sort of chaos or, or just joy, whatever, whatever. And it was two days before Christmas in 2004, and the phone rang. And it was somebody from Match.com, the internet dating site. And they said to me, well, would you meet with us two days after Christmas? And I thought, how amazing that somebody wants to do business right then. <laughs> but I said, fine. And I, I met them in New York, and about 11 people filed into the room. I couldn't figure out what was going on, whether, whether they were other academics, whether this was a think tank, you know. And as it turns out, it was only me. And it was the CEO on down. By the middle of the morning, they said to me, Why do you fall in love with one person rather than another? And that started it. I said at the time, I don't know. Nobody knows. This is what we know. And by the end of the day, they said to me, Well, would you like to start a new dating site with us? And I said, You know, you caught me at the right time. Uh, I'm between projects, but um, I write books for a living and I have to think up something that's important and new to say. Mm -hmm. So I gotta spend a little time thinking about whether I can answer your question of why you fall in love with one person rather than another. So then during the Christmas vacation I kept on thinking, what can you say? What, What can you say about mate choice? And then finally by New Year's Day I came up with an idea. And once an academic gets an idea, they're sunk. Then they, then they do whatever they can to, to see if they can't understand it. But what was really nice is that they want to match people better, and I want to understand mate choice. And so we're very good for each other. They like my science, and of course I love their sites.
0: So how on earth do you go about creating a science for dating?
1: First thing I did was I went to um, all the academic literature to scare up anything I could about personality and biology. I found in the biological literature that these four, there's a lot of chemicals in the brain, but they don't all code for personality traits. Some of them just code for the blinking of the eyes or the swallowing or the beating of the heart. There's only a few that have been linked regularly with personality traits. So first thing I did is I went through all that literature and found All of these traits that are associated with the dopamine system, all of these other traits associated with serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen. And I looked at these, like, four sheets of paper with these, you know, lists of traits on them. And I thought to myself, maybe I could create a questionnaire that measures how much you express each one of these biological systems. And then on this dating site, watch who's drawn to whom. I created the questionnaire from what I knew of biology. Then, I put it on the chemistry.com site and watched how it works. And about 12,000 people take that test every week. So in about three weeks, I can look at statistically at those questions and see what works and what doesn't work. Then you take a question out that doesn't work and put, try a new one. And this way you build a test. But what was interesting about it, I mean, you can watch 40,000 people lying. For example, I mean, I, I put this, I know that the startle response is in the dopamine system. I know it. I know it. I mean, it's just in the data. So, I wrote in one of my things to see if you were high on dopamine, you know, do you startle easily? Well, 40,000 people lied to me. Nobody on a dating site is going to tell you that they startle easily. <laughs>
0: The occasional white lie aside, Fisher says online dating actually has many similarities to the ways we used to date thousands of years ago in hunter-gatherer societies.
1: We somehow think that walking into a bar is a natural way to meet somebody, but you, you have no idea who you're going to meet in a bar. You have no idea whether they're married, whether they're just breezing through town or not, their background, but on a dating site you really do get to know some basic things about a human being before you go out on that first date. And from a, a evolutionary perspective, that's much more natural to the human brain. I mean, for millions of years, we traveled in these little hunting and gathering bands, and annually or semi-annually, during the dry season, they tended to coalesce uh, in large waterholes permanent standing water holes. And about 500 men, women, and children would sit at various campfires and tell stories and visit, et cetera. So a young girl might not know that cute boy over at the other water hole or the other fireplace, but uh, her, her mother knows his aunt. Her father went hunting with his older brother. Who knows? And, you know, so. For millions of years, we knew something about somebody before we started the courting process. And as we move forward with the internet, I think we're moving forward to actually a mating system that is quite compatible with the human spirit.
0: So what is the ideal situation for human mating and matching up? Is it monogamy?
1: First of all, we are a pair-bonding species. 97% of mammals do not pair up to rear their young. Human beings do. And everywhere you look in the world, the vast majority of men take one wife at a time. Even in societies where men are polygynous and have several wives, they generally can't get enough money or status to collect a harem until they their mid-30s or even early 40s. And only about 25% of men actually succeed in having more than one wife at a time. So if you went around the world counting heads, you would have to say that we are a pair-bonding species. We're also an adulterous species. I've looked at adultery in 42 societies, and we tend to be just cheat. It seems as if we have what I call a dual reproductive strategy, a tremendous drive to pair up, and also a tendency to be restless in long relationships and cheat, and also a tendency to divorce and remarry, what I call serial monogamy, a series of pair-bonded relationships and adultery on the side. And if you look in hunting and gathering societies, women tend to have two or three husbands during the course of their lives, and often quite a few extra lovers. So, in many respects, as we leave the agricultural tradition behind us, where sex was really supervised, and you had arranged marriages, and till death do us part, and virginity at marriage, all of those customs that are linked with our farming past are disappearing, and we are. Reemerging, actually, becoming more like we were when we lived in these little hunting and gathering bands. Childhood sexuality, trial marriages in teenage is what they call it, which is living together, and then a series of pair-bonded relationships, and a good deal
0: of adultery too. Most recently, Fisher's been studying the science of hooking up. Kind of the opposite of the online dating philosophy.
1: I'm studying hooking up now with um, a graduate student, uh, Justin Garcia. And there's two ways to get the boy. Either you you know, spend a lot of time talking to him or the girl, or you leap into bed right away and learn a huge amount about him in a few minutes. And also, I'm not recommending this, I mean, everybody's got to run their own love life, but I'm just trying to study it and understand it. Um, But any kind of sexual stimulation triggers the dopamine system in the brain, and you can push yourself over the threshold into falling in love with somebody. And with orgasm, there's a real flood of oxytocin and vasopressin, so you can also feel deeply attached to somebody. So bottom line is casual sex is not casual. Something happens. Unless you're so drunk you can't remember it, something happens. You're turned on or turned off. And it can really stimulate a partnership. In fact, um, when Justin was studying this, he found in a study of 515 people, he asked them why did you go on, t- on one-night stand, uh, uh, a hookup with somebody? And 50% of women and 52% of men said, I did it because I wanted to try and start a l- longer romantic relationship. And one-third of them succeeded. You know, people always think the young are so crazy and so frivolous. And I think they're m- motivated by all kinds of unconscious Neural mechanisms that guide their choices in sex and romance and love.
0: So I felt like I had to ask Fisher what studying love has done to her own love life and her perspective on love.
1: You know, you can know every single ingredient in a piece of chocolate cake and study all those ingredients, be a chemist, or, you know, and then sit down and eat that cake and feel the joy. In the same way, you can study love and know everything about love. And then be as big a fool as the next guy <laughs> when you when you fall in love. But I have to say that I understand more. I really understand. I mean, the times that I've been up all night crying or uh, or something, I knew why. I knew what was going on in the brain. I knew eventually all this would pass. It didn't help at the time, but I knew more. I wasn't as scared. Let's say, um, I I think I have a. Hopefully, even deeper uh, compassion for humanity. Um, you know, I look in baby carriages now, and I think, "Oh, you poor thing, you're going to get dumped someday too, or you're going to have the you're going to have a wonderful time also." I look at other animals. Um, you know, uh, not only our close relatives, chimpanzees and that, but the ducks in Central Park as I'm speeding along on my morning jog and. Um, you know, some of those ducks are more courageous and daring. Some are more cautious and fearful. Some are more uh, better negotiators. They're uh, more compassionate, better better duck skills, people skills. Some are more direct, aggressive. You know, animals have personalities, the way people have personalities. So, I think all this research has really enabled me to uh, have broader compassion for everybody in the world, for everybody who's always ever been. Mm-hmm. I look in museums now, and I see all these little, oh, pieces of jewelry, you know, that they've dug up from 20,000 years ago. And I think to myself, somebody wore that ring. Somebody gave her that ring. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, somebody cried when somebody was gored by a elephant, uh, you know, I mean, in other words, I see the continuity between man and beast, I see the continuity between the history and the future, and I see the continuity of humanity around the world.
0: This was only a taste of some of the amazing science Helen Fisher is working on. If you missed her at the Academy, catch her in our partner event at the Guggenheim, where she'll be collaborating with the Paris Ballet on February 14th and 15th. Go to worksandprocess.org for more information. And don't miss the rest of the Science in the City Girls' Night Out series. We've got four more fantastic, smart, and compelling women scientists coming to wow you in the next few months. For all you need to know, log on to www.nyas.org girlsnightout. Science in the City is a nonprofit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. We need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our events and our website. For more information on Academy membership, and to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org donate. As always, if you have any feedback about our show, you can send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org, or you can always leave a voicemail at 212 298 8654. See you next week.